Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Gerald Jerry Vicenzi, the president of Synernet Inc. Synernet is a for-profit provider of a broad portfolio of administrative and management services to healthcare organizations including workers' compensation administration, clinical engineering, credentialing, coding, and transcription. Jerry has been the president of Synernet since 1999, and under his leadership, Synernet has grown from 25 to more than 270 employees. Jerry brought a wealth of experience with him when he moved from Cleveland, Ohio to Portland, Maine, where Synernet is headquartered. Starting out his career as an industrial engineer, it is fascinating to hear how his engineering background influenced his management approach. He shares his successes and struggles over his 43-year career. We discuss organizational leadership and mentorship and close on the importance of networking through professional organizations such as ACHE. I was particularly interested in interviewing Jerry because Synernet represents a very different kind of organization than we have had on the podcast so far. It was fascinating to listen to how he made strategic decisions to adjust the portfolio of services over the years in response to changes in the marketplace, changes in technology, and changes in the competitive environment for his clients. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening, and here is Jerry Vicenzi. Welcome to The Forge, Jerry. Glad to be here. So you earned your, both your bachelor's and master's degrees from Rensselaer Polytech Institute in management engineering. Why did you go to RPI, and why did you choose management engineering? And what is that as a field? Well, you know, I, I, went, I, I grew up in the, uh, as a baby boomer and the son of uh, immigrants who had elementary school education, but understood the value of education and always preached the need for their children to get a college education. And so it wasn't really ever an option in my mind, even though my father was a skilled laborer and had a real good skilled trade that I could have learned. It was never, he was always, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. Okay. You have to go to college. But why yeah. RPI and, and, and why, um, man, why? RPI because, you know, interestingly, you know, things don't always work like the way you want them to work. So I okay. had, in those days, we applied to three schools, your top school, uh-huh. Your middle school and your safe school. Yeah. And I didn't get into my top school. Okay. <laughs> okay. Which was Brown University. Uh, well, yeah. And um, Most people don't. <laughs> and so I wanted to go away. And okay. my safe school was Northeastern. Uh-huh. It was okay. Boston. Okay. So it was RPI. RPI. So, well, I RPI mean, is a very good school. I don't, <laughs> let's not let's RPI not is an down. excellent school. And actually, I think its profile has risen substantively in the past um, since we left, I don't know if I'd be accepted there or not. <laughs> but, right. Uh, so, yeah, and I thought I wanted to be an engineer. I, I really, I don't know, I, I had fairly good math and science grades. My 
liberal, my, you know, my English, you know, I was never like, I wasn't ever an A student in English and in writing and creative writing and all that. Right. I actually write very well. Okay. From a business side, but you know, yeah. I mean, never the, so a, I just different thought, skills. I just thought that engineering was a good fit for me. And when I got there, um, I found that some of the technical stuff yeah. was a little too technical for me. And so, you know, management, industrial engineering afforded the, the ability to work with people and process. And okay. so I'm an organized person, and I just thought it was a real good fit. I mean, okay. and so was it? Some it's not something you knew about before you got there, but you I learned about it when you I got there. I didn't know about it at all. Okay. I thought I was going to be an engineer of some okay. sort. And uh, you stayed and got your master's degree. That was, or, or did you do that later? No, I did. I stayed and got my master's degree okay. because when I was a senior, RPI received a grant from the Kellogg Foundation to train industrial engineers to work in hospitals. Okay. And it was kind of an easy decision. It was like, you want to go to grad school? And I, so when you look at your career prior to that question, it's like, I've been going to school all my life. I mean, why, why, why shouldn't I go to school again? Yeah. <laughs> and did you know, so, so industrial engineering kind of was a, was a, something you discovered once you got to RPI. Yeah. What about healthcare? I mean, so it was specifically was this master's was specifically healthcare. Had you had thoughts that hey, I'd like well, to work no, in actually, in, in or was this kind of an opportunity? While I was a senior, I had started working part time at, at the New York Hospital Association in Albany, and they had a consulting group that did a broad range of things for hospitals around the state, and so I was a uh, technician, as they called them in those days, and you know, I basically. Did spreadsheets before they had spreadsheets. <laughs> Edited data cards before you couldn't do stuff online. I uh-huh. mean, I was a technician, and uh, I got engaged with healthcare there. And it just happened that... And then the master's was offered? The RPI was, uh, okay. offered the master's in healthcare, and my wow. career path was chosen. Wow, how Or neat. divined, I guess. Okay. I didn't choose it. I, you know, and yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, I'd like to think... You'd like to think you're a little more conscious? I guess, I, I don't know. You know, I, I'd like to think that I could... I would have been a little more conscious about the decision, but I wasn't. I mean, reality, it occurred. Yeah. And sometimes things like that happen in life, as you, as you learn later in life. Sometimes, you know, doors open, you know, one closes, another one opens, and you move through the door. And it's been, it was, I have another situation later that I'll talk about that I, that, that occurred. So, yeah, so when I left there, my first job was actually working for a hospital association in Rhode Island. Okay. As a management engineer. They had a shared, it's, it's interesting, my first job was in a shared services organization that was part of the Hospital Association of Rhode Island. Interesting. Uh, Hospital Association does typically advocacy and public policy work. Mm-hmm. And in, some, in many states, they have service arms. You know, they have a service arm, and they just happen to have a service arm that, you know, at the time included one of the first industrial engineering programs to be shared by hospitals in New England. Okay. So you were so, kind of a consultant then? Yes, yeah, so I was a consultant. I was a staff consultant, and we, we worked around the state of Rhode Island at different hospitals doing process improvement and productivity improvement work before it was popular. <laughs> oh, neat. Wow. So um, it, I think that was the, probably the best part of that job was that I really finally began to understand that I had something to contribute. I was a really, when I went out of school, I felt like, and I get all this education, but I don't know how I'm really going to apply it to the real world. Okay. Um, and how does it really work? And my first job just gave me, you know, 
good footing. I mean, and I, I was fortunate. Um, I actually worked for one hospital, Newport, Rhode Island. I did a lot of work at Newport. You know, so that was a really nice. We've Providence take a nice drive to Newport. <laughs> That's just pretty nice. Uh, but uh, there was a gentleman there named Bob Healy who was the COO. And I, what I find in life is that sometimes people see more in you than you see in yourself. Yeah. Bob Healy saw a lot of me. Oh, nice. So I did a lot of work for Bob directly. You know, he had these projects he needed done. And, uh-huh. You know, required, you know, either, you know, process work or working with, you know, I had to work with the director of the labs at the time who was an ornery pathologist. But, you know, he needed help buying an analy- a new analyzer. Yeah. And, you know, and Bob said, hey, you know, I need an economic comparison of, of what he's buying, you know, and what the advantages are and the disadvantages. So, and... I mean, Bob treated me like, like I tell you, at that time as a 24-year-old, Bob treated me as an equal. I mean, my opinion mattered. I mean, okay. it was great. So he's kind of a mentor to you. He was kind of a mentor in those days when I look okay. back on it. It yeah. really made me feel, you know. Actually, yeah. he and the other individual was a CFO there named Everett Camps, which was just wonderful to work for. Especially when you, like I said, you're fresh out of school. Yeah. You really don't know how. What you have to say, is it really going to be accepted? Does it really mean anything? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it was a great experience. And I left there because I really thought I wanted a, a more high profile consultative role. I mean, I got involved. Actually, at the time, I actually got involved in the Hospital Management System Society, which today is HIMSS and is one of the biggest, at the time it was hospital management. I mean, I started my involvement with professional organizations way back then. Okay found that networking opportunity that you get from being with other professionals in your discipline really valuable. Yeah. And I mean, you know, as a result, you know, I was exposed to, you know, larger consulting, you know, organizations like Ernst and Young or well, there's Ernst and Ernst at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's Ernst and Winnie now, you know, Arthur Anderson. And so, you know, about three years into my job, I, I really decided I really didn't look for something a little more high profile. Uh, and um, so I interviewed in Chicago with, Two companies, uh, Ernst and Ernst at the time, and a company called the Medica Systems Corporation. And in '76, I took a job with Medica Systems in Chicago, at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital. They had an on-site program there to provide management engineering services, and they also outsourced the data processing facilities. And they was outsourcer for so Medica's concept in those days was that. You know, business process and industrial engineering and computer systems are, should be one. Okay. So to try to meld the three disciplines together in a, in a company and they were very successful. I had some really substantive, you know, some well-regarded clients at the time. So Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's became my home base with Medicus and I spent about two years there and did a variety of different projects for Rush. And then career progresses and you, you, People, someone sits you down and says, well, you know, we got the next, next opportunity for you. And I'm going, wow, this is wonderful. You know, I've only been here two years. I got another opportunity. It means I'm doing a good work. I mean, I'm being rewarded. And I, and I say, you know, I'm, I'm all primed. You know, they've got hospitals in Texas, Florida, California. Because I'm going, they go, we want you to move to Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That, that was probably at the top of your list. Just a little bit of a setback. <laughs> okay. In fact, I, w- I remember B- I was in Biloxi, Mississippi at the annual HMSS meeting that February and talking to people and they go, you going where? 
You're going to Cleveland? It was a, it was a blizzard of 78. It smothered the East Coast. Sent Midwest was in one of those years. And uh, um, so in, in 78, I moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and doing the same work with Medicus for Mount Sinai Medical Center. Okay. And I was, I was the manager for the program at Mount Sinai Medical Center. So okay. I got a promotion and I went to, I went, I transferred to Cleveland, Ohio. And there, there, there began a, I don't, let me think, think back about it, about a 13 year relationship with Mount Sinai Medical Center. Right. First as a consultant, then as an employee, um, in two different stints of employment. Okay. All right. So, so eventually you were the vice president of support services for Mount Sinai. Right. Okay. That was, that was my last round. Okay. So you'd been there, you'd left and come back. Yeah. I'd been there. You know, I, I guess it, still struggling to find an identity in my late twenties. And I, 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 I know I was tired. I was getting tired of the consultative role because I felt consulting, you give advice and then people don't do what you tell them to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and you become credenza wear, you know, a nice right. report on, on a shelf. And, uh-huh. uh, um, although I, I have to say there was a gentleman at, at Mount Sinai Medical Center who, similar to Bob Peely, was a COO there, Warren Greenwald, who really appreciated the work I did. I mean, you know, I was just, we just got along fabulously. And uh, that that eventually came back to pay dividends for me. But uh, about three years into that stint, I uh, I got one of these wanderlust things that I was going to just go out west and go skiing for, for, for a year. And the folks who ran the company said, hey, you know, I got a great situation for you in Saudi Arabia. And I said... Saudi Arabia. Well, you know, you know the, the, the company that I worked for, Medicus, had sold their consultative interests and to a large conglomerate who just managed to operate hospitals for the Ministry of Defense and Aviation in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia. And they had loaned talent to that division over the course of the two years. And they, uh, they said, hey, you're going to assignment over there for you for four months. So why don't you go do that? And you come back, you can figure out whether you want to go do something else. Okay. So, I, so they knew you wanted to, you were kind of burning out maybe a little bit. And yeah. Just gave you something different. Gave me something different to do. I sort of really a fascinating experience traveling in the Middle East. Uh-huh. I mean, even in those days, it was a little scary, you know, scary. Because it's, you know, it's, well, it's totally different. It's not Western culture. Right. So, yeah. So I, got, I spent four months there. And the nice part about that is after four, it wasn't even four. It was more like three and a half. I got an extra four weeks of vacation in addition to the one. That was, that was my deal. Okay. My deal was four weeks vacation, yeah. extra weeks vacation. And so I, I traveled and I went to, I went to Egypt for about a week and a half and did all the pyramids and down to Luxor and then came back and then went to the Greek islands and worked my way back from Greece up through Italy uh, over to France and I might get to Paris. Actually, had met my mother and my sister there because my, we have we actually have relatives in France. And uh, by the time I get to Paris, I was about six or eight, six or seven weeks into my travels. And I, you know, my goal was to go. That was time to go home. Yeah. I got my plane in Paris. I came back to the United States and then um, spent about two or three months getting on a plane every week out of Boston, working for medic. Back, you know, back okay. doing consulting work. Okay. And. That wasn't, that was never, I mean, being a road warrior was never my thing in life. And, uh, or I got a call from, from Mount Sinai and they said, well, why don't you come back here and work for us? So we got an opportunity for you to come back and work for us. And so I went back, moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, went to work for Mount Sinai Medical Center. 
And you were there for quite a while, as you so said. Probably nine years. Okay. Interrupted by a brief one-year stint in the headhunting and recruiting business. Oh, is that your work as um, leadership strategies? No. Okay. No. That was something else. That was after the fact. So I went. It's amazing. Things change in organizations. Leaders change. Some things stay constant. But I had left for a year. I can't remember the. I don't remember the whole situation why I had left. But still, you know, I had actually decided. You know, I wanted to try to do something where I was a little more vested in, in, in the enterprise. And I had met this individual who was a real professional. He'd been in the banking and insurance banking industry, and he had basically bought a, a recruit a recruitment and practice for accountants, you know, from a national, and he was, you know, he was the principal and he was looking for additional people to work with him, particularly on the technology side, because I had, well, I, well, I wasn't programmer, or, you know, an IT person. My experience was I had them working in my organization and working with them, and he was looking for someone who understood that, those kinds of things. So I went to work for him for a year, and I really was a, I mean, that was a real postgraduate education in my mind, because it taught me about making a call in sales. Okay. <laughs> Which yeah. is something they don't teach you in college. Yeah. And um, can you, could you even learn that in a classroom, do you think? I, I don't think you learn that in a class. I mean, really, that's a hard, that's a school of hard knocks. Right. You know, right. You know, because it's like, here's a directory of people to call. Here's the phone. Yeah. Go make your calls. Wow. Introduce yourself. You know, get to know people. And it worked. It, you know, it, it was, it was real difficult to start. And by the end of the first year, I was beginning to gain traction. And then I got a call from Ron Sinai again. My friend Warren again, he goes, things have changed again here. We need you to come back again. We're okay. going to make you a vice president. Wow. We're going to give you, a, you know, secure. I mean, my, my, I was in this business. I mean, it was a commission business. So, yeah. I mean, the first year was not very lucrative. Right. So, well, at that point, I, I, actually, I got married the same year. Okay. So, so a little stability was appealing. At the that stability point was appealing. I, and I was, I guess I, you know, that wanderlust kind of thing of took me to Saudi Arabia, took me from Rhode Island to Chicago. It's like, I need some stability here. Okay. Well, hardly wonder a lot, but you know, um, so yeah, so I, I went back and I, I served there for, uh, five or six years as vice president of support services. And, uh, so what was that role? That role was basically coordinating the, 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 you know, the functions of administrative support functions in the organization, uh, environmental services, food services, supply chain, security, non-clinical oriented functions within the organization, safety. That's a great, that's a difficult one to be in charge of, but <laughs> right. yeah. safety and security, those are very difficult things to be responsible for, but um, as an administrative response part, and, uh, it was really an, I, and what I really learned there was the value of teamwork and having a team. I had great people working for me. And part of that was the fact that I recruited at least three or four of them. And I mean, I realized how important it was just uh, if you are in an executive role and you have broad responsibilities to have really, really strong leaders working for you. Okay. Well, that, that, that taught me that very, very clearly and distinctly. And, um, so I spent my five, five or six years there, and then I got caught in a downsizing. So the hospital was downsizing? The hospital downsized, okay. yeah. And so this the, was kind of like the late 80s? This was early, like early 90s. Early 90s. So we're 91, seeing the effects of PPS, probably? 
Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, prospective payment system had begun, and it was somewhat a bit of a, what's the word? I, I would call it a slap in the face. Um, more of like a, how could this possibly happen? I mean, yeah. you know, really two months ago, things. two months ago, you know, you're doing such a great job, Jerry. We really, really appreciate what, you know, and, you know, I mean, and then, yeah. you know, two months later, it's like, sorry, you know, we're cutting out your position. And, um, um, organizational politics, dynamics, or whatever it was. I mean, I got caught up, I mean, with probably about 20, 20 or 30 other key yeah. people. So it wasn't just a small, I mean, but uh, it was. And, you know, what had happened in that 12-year time frame, or that time frame at Mount Sinai is, I really focused on the job internally, had kind of let any kind of network exterior okay. to the organization drop. So you so had, I wasn't I wasn't interrelating a lot with people hmm. external to my mm-hmm. job. You, you had know. made that a point early in your career though. Right. I had made it a point early in my career and it kinda and then you not realized I mean, not realized the positive and the positives and importance of that. Okay. Until I was in, in this situation. And um I was subsequently but the, you know, they they were in the in in those days, which is scary. But 25 years ago, or 20, more than 20 years ago, organizations were pretty generous with their um, severance and, and packages. And so we had a really decent severance package. And besides that, we had out, full outplacement services. So not, not outplacement services where I had an office to go to every day. You could get up every morning, get dressed, go to an office, yeah. have access to, you know, it's also expensive kind of service. They don't do that kind of outplacement anymore. Very. Right. <laughs> But it, it, it was, uh, that was a reawakening experience for me in terms of the need to really just build a network of people, you know, I mean, uh, and, and to be out there. And in that time frame, when I couldn't find another opportunity or another role, I, uh, I started that consulting practice to do work, which kind of leveraged off what I'd which I, what I basically knew is what I, that was my focus is like, what can I leverage off of this? Right. What can I, you know, I know a little about leadership. You know, I've managed, you know, you know, a, a unit of an organization and I understand the importance of, uh, you know, of being a leader and of having sound people working for you and good managers and, you know, and relying on them. Um, and I mean, I understood systems and productivity and process. And so I tried to combine something into a practice to do work and, uh, it was it's tough. It's a tough go being an independent consultant. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got to build that practice. Yeah, you've you got to build a practice. You've got to build a presence. Uh, build your network of, again. Huh? Build your network. you got to build your network. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe, you know, I, I put together a nice, I may have it somewhere, very nice brochure. Yeah. I mean, kind of describing what we do, who we are. And yeah. I'm really proud of the, you know, but, you know, you get out there and kind of, Secure some, a few engagements. I've secured a few engagements, small ones, nothing really large. And, uh, in the, in the middle of this process, I got a phone call from a headhunter. And this dates back, you know, we got your name from Mount Sinai Medical Center a year ago. Would you be interested in, in, in talking to us about this opportunity at the Greater Cleveland Hospital Association? And so I'm looking at my, okay, so I'm, 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 Going to, so I, I said to myself, 
So to Hannah, I remember I said to Hannah, he goes, would you be interested in talking? I go, well, you know, I got to I gotta look at my schedule, you know, <laughs> the consulting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, when can we get together? Okay. And so one thing led to another. And once again, I opted for stability. Interestingly, my son was born that same year. So I had a a one-year-old yeah. in 92, or in the, in the fall of 92, I had a one-year-old. My wife and I had moved from our home, which I had bought. We, we, bought, this, we bought this really nice home on a golf course, and it's a very nice home. And, I mean, when, when, we, when, I lost my job, when I lost my job at Sinai, after about nine months, it was like, we're going to do something. We really can't. So we rented the house out for two years. Wow. So we were living in a condo, you know. We were paying rent, but we were renting a house in a condo. In a, in a, it's making a little, but so the job at, at, at the association was kind of a safe harbor, in, in a way. I, I didn't, and I, I looked at it that. That's what I says. It's a safe harbor, Jerry. You should take yeah. it. Yeah. Just go there and take it. So, what was I doing for them? I was their vice president for materials management services. Um, again, back to my roots. It's another association. You know, advocacy, public policy, public health initiatives in, in the greater Cleveland area with a big services arm. They had a big services arm. And one of the big services was group, group buying, group purchasing. And despite the fact that I had not ha- had hands-on experience with the purchasing function of the supply chain, I, that re- it had reported to me at Mount Sinai Medical Center and I understood it and I knew it. And CEO at the association chose me for this job over a couple of people who actually were directors of materials management at local institutions. And, um, I kept, became, I get to know those guys pretty well over sure. the course of the next seven years because they became my customers. But again, in that case, Wayne Rice, someone seeing something in you yeah. that you necessarily see in yourself. I mean, I mean, you have, you have value to offer that. You know, sometimes that's not intrinsically apparent to you as, you, as you, as you, you know, as your career develops, you know. Some people have this overwhelming self-confidence. Not everybody does. Sure. I could say I didn't. Yeah. So Wayne saw something in me. I went to work there, and in seven years, we grew that group purchasing program to a quarter of a billion dollars in gross purchases from like 70 or 80 million. And we do we had customers in Ohio and in Michigan. At the same time, I also took responsibility for another service that they had, which was medical coding. Okay, I had a medical coding pool, which is something we try to do here. We have a medical coding service now here. Um, what was the unique, the, the unique thing that made it successful in Cleveland was that you had a concentration in a, in, a, in a small geography of, you know, let's say 60 miles by, by 40 miles where someone who worked at this hospital might want to moonlight at night and make a couple extra bucks on the other side of town. And I had a person who was the, the director of that program that knew every coder in Northeast Ohio. And so we had a very successful service where we basically helped hospitals with their coding backlogs, even in those days. I mean, coding backlogs were always an issue. So I, I was responsible for that function there. I, I What I really liked about that is... Back to my experiences at Sinai was I was external to the organizations, dealing with multiple organizations, and I liked that. I liked being 
an outsider, not being necessarily inside the hospital. And I said, I'll never really go back to being inside a hospital again. Okay. You made that call while you were at uh, yeah. the hospital association. Uh, I'm not going to go back to being inside a hospital again. I really liked the, you know, you, you get to you get to see multiple organizations, meet with multiple CEOs, meet with multiple directors of material. You really, you just broadened your perspective on, on, on a lot of things, which is why I really believe that Sometimes executives treat suppliers as vendors, you know, as opposed to treating them as partners. Suppliers have a great perspective. If they're, if they're a good vendor and they're, they're smart, they've got perspectives that you don't get in an individual organization because they're out in the marketplace talking to multiple organizations. They see what goes on there. And, you know, they bring that kind of value, that experience to the table when they talk to you. So I, I really, anyhow, I, I really enjoyed my role there. But it was a little restrictive in terms of my autonomy. Okay. How so? I started, started understanding what autonomy is about, which is like, I really like the work you're doing. I'm going to give you a $2,000 increase next week. Okay. Little th- things like that. Yeah. Which I didn't have the latitude to do. I see. I didn't have the latitude to do things. I had a lot of latitude to do a lot of stuff with customers and a latitude in terms of managing my, the people that have to service my customers. So that's kind of a, I, you know, when I, it was, I think it was the organization. I, it's like, it's just, that's the way it was. I mean, it's limiting in that regard. And while, while I was there, I got engaged with the local, the, the national trade association that represented health industry. It represented group purchasing, which is called the Health Industry Group Purchasing Association. Okay. And I attended one of their meetings, and I don't know, the executive director of the organization took a shining or a liking to me, and, you know, so he asked me to sit on a committee. Sit on a committee? Can you sit on this committee? And I, well, eventually, I ended up running through all the chairs there. I mean, I became, you know, treasurer and then chairman and then past chairman, and I did the whole... The whole room. Was this of the national organization? Yeah, it's a national health industry okay. purchasing association. Okay. And you know, as a small organ, we were a small piece of it from a purchasing perspective. We had a lot of big, big players that were part of that. But the value of that, those relationships and that networking, wow, God. Well, the value of that networking and those relationships got me the job in Maine. Okay. So, <laughs> because a recruiter uh, from Whit Kiefer. Obviously, was talking to other people, you know, the group purchasing association, who's around, who might be interested in these kind of opportunities. And, you know, Cinternet had a big place in group purchasing. That was our, that was our first foray as a collaborative organization was group buying and group purchasing. And so they, so the recruiter finds me and says, Hey, you know, I got an opportunity. And I, and I, I'd started, I'd started, like I said, I, I felt a little, it's time for another move. Yeah. Um, I got an opportunity. Seven years? Five, six, seven I've been years. there seven years, seven, yeah. yeah. And, I, and, and I got an opportunity in Maine. Maine? They <laughs> <laughs> go, yeah, I think I know that's not the Massachusetts. I think I, I've been there once. Yeah. Which is like, well, you know, you could be the CEO of this organization. And I go, well, it sounds like an opportunity I need to think about. Okay. I, I had never really thought about being the CEO of an organization. So that was not something you were aspiring to, I wasn't pursuing. As, I wasn't aspiring to it. I was just aspiring to certain things that I aspired to. Having responsibility, having autonomy, 
having the opportunity to make things happen. I mean, I, I, I kind of and, and I and having been in a number of organizations, going, you know, I can make those kind of decisions just like all those guys did. Why can't I do that? I mean, I can make them. I can make them just as bad or just as good. <laughs> I'm hopefully I'm going to make them more good ones than bad ones. Yeah. And so I wasn't aspiring and looking for that kind of. You know, and I said to somebody, I said, it could have been the CEO of a popcorn stand, but the idea of having my own responsibility and autonomy to, to make something happen really, really appealed to me. When that offer was made to you. When that offer it? was made to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in February of 99, um, I had been up here once or twice, and they said, well, we need to come back the next time you need to bring your wife with you. You should probably bring your wife. So we came up here on Valentine's Day of 99, actually. It was Valentine's Day week. And I said, well, you know, you've never been to Maine. Why don't you come with me? You know, who knows where this is going to go? I was, I still was not like, they're going to pick me. And you know, I went through a, I had to go through a round of interviews again. And she came up here and she kind of go, you know, I think I could live here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was like, you think so? Because I, you know, um, so, you know, within a month of that, they made me a job offer and I decided to come, come to Maine in April of 99. I moved here. Okay. Um, left my family back in Ohio. Um, we had moved back into the house we had bought. We had, after I'd worked at GCHA for a year, we had moved back into the house. Uh, my son was seven. I think it was a good time to move. My wife was, she, she was really good about the move in terms of, yeah, I'm excited about doing something different. Yeah. Uh, it was a real challenge when we first got here. Um, for both of us, from the perspective of a big relocation is like that. Um, I, I knew what the dynamics, I, I, I kind of had an idea what the dynamics were of being CEO of assuming responsibility for an organization. I could, uh, rationalize that, make my notes about how I was going to handle this, how I was going to introduce myself to people, you know, all those kinds of things from a business perspective. That wasn't a, that wasn't a, that wasn't as much of a challenge as the personal situation of uplifting and, and breaking, what, 20 plus years of relationships and personal relationships and friendships and all that kind of stuff being right. dropped in a new area. Right. Not you knowing anybody. Know, knew nobody, had been here once before. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, but we, you know, first year there were countless times where I go, man, I hope this is the right thing we did. <laughs> Back and forth. But we got through that. And I think part of the, I, I interestingly, I, I always attribute part of the positive aspect of having a child later in life, because I was 42, my wife was almost 40 when Chase was born, was that he really was, the, that's how we built our relationships. <laughs> Yeah, through yeah. school, right. you know, through you know, we didn't right. have a child going to school. If we had, you know, it was our our, our older daughter was grown in, out of the house and living in New York City when we moved there. She's forty now, so yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just you know that whole that whole thing of having. You know, so we 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 settled here in uh, like I said in '99, and I came on board. And Cindernet was a uh, a hospital co-op that had been started by the smaller hospital, community hospitals in the state to collaborate and gain economies and efficiencies. And in particular for purchasing, for right? purchasing okay. of any kind of goods and services. And okay. there was a underlying animus regarding the larger organizations in the state. So Eastern Maine, I mean, Eastern Maine up in Bangor, 
main medical center here in Portland because it was always like, you know, all they want to do is dominate, take, etc. you know, and, you know, they really don't want to do anything for us. And so this was kind of a little bit of a, and it become like, and it was a collaborative, and they did a lot of collaborative other things besides purchasing. They had, you know, colla- they have collaborative groups looking at different, like, you know, they had a great collaborative group that looked at pharmacy uh, medication errors. So they brought together their farmers to look at medication errors. Back in the 90s, they were tracking them in a card punch kind of driven computer system. <laughs> but, I mean, they were doing some innovative things to try to get on top of the things that they needed to get on top of as a collaborative organization. And that started were they the, doing that through Cinternet? Yeah, through Cinternet. Okay. Yeah. So um, when I came on board, though, in 99... Yeah, the collaborative was about 12 years old, and it had begun to wane in terms of people, members leaving and not paying their dues, not wanting to pay dues, because it was a dues-driven organization, and even though we had services, and we had started a few services, and uh, the main, med- main health had started and had actually brought Brighton Medical Center, which was here in town, and... Um, they were in the process of bringing, they brought on a couple other hospitals, Stevens Memorial out in St. Andrews and Miles up in Damascata. And so, you know, the systemization had begun. It was a wave of systemization. And so some of the smaller guys were like independence. When we're gaining independence, no matter what we can do, yeah. we need to do everything we can do to retain our independence. And so that, that's why they decided to continue to sustain Cinternet and so my, my vision when I came on board was, I think we've tried to delve into areas that are not within our competency. I thought the things we're really doing well are those things that are administrative and really lend themselves to economic consolidation of services and expertise that okay. you can share. The work that, you know, the clinic, the workers comp, the clinical engineering, the group purchasing, some of these other clinical things we were trying to, at the time they tried to do a, uh, what do we call it? I'm sorry. Community health improvement initiative across all their entities. Well, you know, community health is something that's locally driven, but you can't, you can't, you can't aggregate stuff across. I mean, the idea, I mean, the idea might have been sound. I mean, it might have been, but it just had a lot, the devil's in the details. It didn't work. They yeah. spent a lot of money on consultants and trying to get plans. And then they had also tried to put together a managed care network to compete with the contracting issues that were going on in prospective payment system and, but again, a managed care network without an anchor tertiary care hospital is one of your anchors. I mean, how can you have, how can you have a real good managed care network to provide services that, you know, all those initiatives have failed. And it really, from a financial perspective, they lost a quarter of a million dollars a year before I got here. Um, so, but there was still this need for some of the hospitals that we need to maintain this positive, the positive aspects of the organization and this collaborative focus. And so that's when I came on board. And so it was really a, a turnaround in a way, in a, in a turnaround in a build. And so, so what did your, how did your experiences prior to coming to Cinternet, how did, what do you think best prepared you for the role that you then took on in 1999? I think, I think, I think it's a little of everything. Okay. Because, I think the engineering mentality and the process focus just lends itself to problem solving, no matter what the problem is. So the problem here is like how to sustain this organization and find new ways to grow it and build new services. So it's a problem. And in my in an analytical engineer's mind, it's a problem. What do we do? What are the steps we need to take? You know, yeah. how do we t- implement the steps and put together some information to assess? And then if we 
see how it works and if it doesn't work, let's, let's kind of, you know, modify the process and come back and try again. I mean, so, I mean, I think that whole engineering discipline and mentality, I, I think having worked inside a hospital, particularly it was a real value to me because I had a lot, I, I, I have, I've had people who've worked for us in this organization over the past X number of years who have come to us from not having been inside the customer. So I really understood the inside of the hospital. So it was important that you had done that stint. Yeah. As an, as yeah. an employee. In, yeah, yeah, no. At Mount Sinai. Yeah, right. I mean, was I really understood the inner workings of the hospital and particularly all this kind of administrative service related functions, which is what we were talking about. I'm not talking about radiological functions here, right. you know, or like clinical functions. It was, it was, and it was, and then the third aspect I think was the experience at Greater Cleveland Hospital Association dealing with services provided to a diverse group of organizations and hospitals, not providing service, you know, from like a supply chain organization within a hospital, but services to multiple organizations and multiple customers and understanding customer service and what that means if you want to be the supplier or program 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 of choice for a hospital. So I think all that combined to make, you know, really it's interesting when I look at it. I you know all those three elements, the analytical engineering piece, the hands-on experience inside a hospital, and then the third piece of having worked in a setting where I dealt with multiple customers. Because we've frequently looked, and we, we, we sometimes look at talent in, in some of our services. This is a good example in our, in our credentialing service arena, where we provide shared credentialing services for like 50, 40 or 50 organizations. I mean, frequently, I mean, you know, some of our, our customers end up being medical staff offices at the hospitals, and medical staff offices go through transitions and turnovers and, um, and, you know, frequently, you know, we, we you know, Cheryl, and someone with Cheryl Schulke will tell me, she goes, well, what's your name at Joan at, you know, XYZ Hospital is no longer there. And I go, wow, geez, I thought she was a really good customer. We really liked her. She goes, yeah. I go, well, you think she'd be a good, she goes, not necessarily. A, a good hire for us. Yeah. Yeah. Would she be a good fit for us? Not necessarily. Okay. Because she's accustomed to doing things, you know, I mean, XYZ Hospital's way. XYZ Hospital's way, not our way. You yeah. know, I mean, our, Cheryl has found greatest success hiring for attitude and, and, and basically good skills and training them than hiring people with the expertise from a hospital in the credentialing arena. So it's kind of like, I, I think that's probably, you know, that, that, that's, that's an interesting thing here. You're not, you know, I, I think it's important for people who work for Cinternet today, it's great. It's great if they have the hospital experience. That's that's a, that's a, that's a plus. But they really have to have the attitude that's really customer service and customer focused first. Customer centric is the number one thing for us. That is, that is the driving force. And so that means that every uh, you know, if you have, if your customer base is 15, 20, 30 organizations, they're all equal. <laughs> They're all important, right? They're all important. And so I think that that's, that's, it's, there's a different mentality. Um, and I, I had that situation uh, a couple of years ago in my coding arena. I was looking, I, uh, my director of coding who started our program decided that being, managing a, a revenue generating, even though she was extremely adept and well respected in that arena, this was not her bag. 
okay. being responsible for a revenue line, employees and generating a, you know monthly revenue and servicing multiple cut was not her bag. And you know, so my my question is who in the HIM community within the state of Maine can fill your role? And it's like not too many people. Because <laughs> you want a, you want a person who is not just an expert in their discipline. You want a person who has, you know, managerial and leadership skills to run a small business, basically. Right. So it's different, you know, it, it's a little different. So, yeah. you know, that, that, that's the kind of people that we need to have in this organization. And we need to have employees who are very, have a positive customer-centric attitude. Okay. Attitude is key. So in, in 2000, shortly after you came, you actually, uh, uh actually joined up with Maine Health. Is that yes. correct? So, so what, what was that strategically? How did you make that decision? And, and yeah, that was, and what did that mean for the organization? Yeah. Um, so once I got, once I got to the state, my chairman at the time, uh, who was CEO up at Franklin Memorial sat down with me and said, he said, you know, this collaborative, co-op model we have he goes forget this member-based dues function you need to figure out how to do business with any organization in the state who can match up to the services that you provide and at the time we did no business with Maine Health a Maine Medical Center Maine General Eastern Maine Healthcare any uh, big guys I mean it was it was a small guys co-op so I took about that first year Synergy had a good reputation. With, we had a good brand recognition within the state, you know, not only among the smaller hospital community where we were, you know, that was our forte. That was our, you know, forte. People knew who we were. Um, so I, I, you know, really, I, I met with just about every CEO in the state of Maine that first two years, as you know, as I began working through my notes, talking to my chair talking to a couple of other members on my board who were saying, Jerry, you know, you got to figure out how this evolving force in the state of Maine, Maine health, <laughs> can be in our camp. I mean, really. Yeah. And so, I mean, I had a meeting with uh, the key leaders at Maine, at Maine Health and uh, made a presentation about who we are, what we do. And I said, you know, we're looking for partnerships here in, in some of these, you know, key areas that we work in. Uh, clinical engineering, uh, and uh, the CEO at the time, Don McDowell, who was preceded Bill Karen, said, he goes, you know, he goes, what's new now? He goes, you know, we've tried to approach you guys in the past about trying to work together, and we're kind of like rebuffed. And I go, that's the new game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is a new world. I go, I mean, I mean, our, our, I mean, I, I really, our survival going forward is going to be built on our ability to have scale. You know, and we can't get enough scale from just from if we don't work with larger entities in the state, whether they're individual, like yourself, you know, or have broader members, membership. And uh, Main Health is actually in the process of, and they've been very, they they know how to how to how to create the right kind of control in their ownership and governance structure to give them the kind of ownership and control they want, but they don't necessarily control day-to-day what you do on a day-to-day basis and so i mean the, the way they had structured most of their arrangements we st- and now they're, they're re-examining that now 15 years later i mean or 14 years later is i mean what i mean we never really consolidated assets i mean main health is a system and i guess most hospital systems are not consolidation of assets they're basically 
member kind of, you know, member control, kinda, you know, controlled by a large entity of, of, of board and things like that, but not actually consolidation of assets. So Maine Health, familiar with the model, understood the issues of control and, and came back to us with a proposal that made Cinternet an entity of Maine Health, okay, you know, with the same status as any of their hospitals where Maine Health would have basically class A shares, which they do. Okay. The remaining hospitals would have class B shares. And the only difference between the class A and the class B is class A it has controlling stock. And so if the company wants to close down, be sold, or if you want to borrow any real big money, they need to have a say in it. Otherwise, what they do is they, they delegate the operation of the organization to the class A and class B shareholders equally. So my board is equally composed of four class A members and four class B members. Okay. So there's a balance, you know, so there's power, you know, Maine Health is the class A shareholder and the owner. Uh-huh. I mean, technically, but everyone has equity. Okay. So, so the class B holders are more like stakeholders rather the than stakeholders, but you know, I think that the, the intent at the time was let's keep them at the table as a stakeholder yeah. and not, you know, not just say, well, we'll take over Cinternet. I mean, they could have done that. Yeah. They could have easily said, not only are we going to match the capital that's in the organization, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to pay you back for the other capital, and we're going to own the whole company. And I think they, the, the idea was, no, we'll keep them at the table as stakeholders. And actually, it was a good model. We revisited it a couple of times since then. You know, We said we revisit it in three years. I remember three years after we formed it. And it said, no, this model's working. It's a good model. Yeah. Let's just keep it the way it is. Why don't we want to change it? What's the benefit it? of having the Class B shareholders in, in, on the board? What, what, what's the benefit to, to, the, to Cinternet? And to those shareholders, uh, the benefit to the shareholders is that they're involved in the decision making. Okay. I mean, they control the organization. I mean, our strategy, our plans, our you know, our fund, everything. I mean, they, they're the ones who drive it. I mean, and they're Class B or Class A. You know, the board members have equal. Okay. So it's it's been it's been a good structure. I, I think it, it may undergo some fundamental reevaluation in the next three to five years here, or two to I mean, because. The number of independent entities in the state of Maine is is is, is shrinking, shrinking rapidly, right. right? And so, it's not unrealistic that at some point Maine Health would assume all. But as of right now, we're still working under that model, and I think our trust is to work under that model for okay. a period of time. So, so the idea to bring Maine Health on board was access to more scale in the state, and. You know, so you could then sell to Maine Health. No more services. And so uh-huh. what, what it did for us was clearly bring more scale to the table, not guaranteed scale, because mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that we have sold every one of our customers and every one of our services based on what we do and how we do it and the value yeah. we deliver. So not Maine because, Health doesn't tell Not because Maine Health said, you're going to do you'll this. You'll use Cinternet. Yeah. Right. Now, you've never done that. Okay. So it's still up to you to go, even, even a Maine Health entity, it's still up to you to say, hey, yeah. We'd like you to be right. a customer, right. and they can say no. Right, and okay. you know, Bill, can you call Tim over at that hospital and suggest to him that you know we got a great proposal on the table? <laughs> sure, Jer. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, you got but, a little bit of an inside advantage. I give but, just a little bit of an inside. But advantage. they don't have to. Buy they them. don't have to. I mean, in some cases, and if they, they have it, but much to my much to my staff's like. It's like, why aren't they doing this? And I go, because you know they have another choice. I mean, it's a free market. I mean, we operate yeah. in a free market, so. What's happened since the main health is, uh, well, credentialing was something we never did before. Uh-huh. And we assumed 
a staff of four people that they had in their PHO uh, that used to do the credentialing work for their PHO. And a PHO is for, for Physician Hospital Organization. Okay. Um, a uh, creation that hospital, uh, some hospitals, organization that many hospitals created in order to jointly contract with third parties where, you know, you have independent physicians who aren't employees of the hospital, so you don't have a real contracting arm. So in order to do that, you need to put together an organization. So the physician's interests are represented in the PHO, the hospital's interests here, and then they jointly contract through the two organizations so with third parties and things like that. It gives more scale when they yeah. when they negotiate. Well, yeah, so they're not negotiating individual. So the PHO gives doctors more leverage, and it allows the hospitals and the doctors to go jointly, you know, to the third parties. So... Um, we took those folks over, and uh, I said, now I've got, what, 16 to 17 people doing credentialing work. I mean. So you quadrupled the size of your staff. Yeah, I'm quadrupled the size of it, and we do it all over the state. and uh, We do it from York all the way to Fort Kent. Okay. Up to, you know, Maine General is our customer, Central Maine. We even do it for Central Maine Healthcare, which is, I mean, the the dynamics between Maine Medical Center and Central Maine Healthcare are not positive. <laughs> That's like <laughs> This a, is competition. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, it's main health competition, is, but you're, yeah, right, you're but selling your This is your something that sits in this box over here. It's not yeah. competitive. Well, we don't view yeah. it as competitive. Actually, yeah. it's a, if it's really pos- it's a positive for providers. It, it, you know, in those cases, you don't get too much of that. But we get overlap here in, in Portland, in particular, where if you're a provider and you're applying for privilege, you know, for usually you you work at both. You most independent providers here work at both Maine Medical Center and Mercy. And so you've got to get privilege, you've got to get credentialed and privileged at both organizations. So we facilitate that process. You do it one time with us. Yeah. Because we coordinate it so it's on your birth date. And so yeah. we have it set up with both of the organizations and on the birth date, this guy will come. So he submits his application once to us as opposed to having it submitted at different times in a, in a different way. So sure. It, it, it's a great Simplif- administrative simplification for providers who sometimes today are very overwhelmed by the administrative details yeah. um, that they have to fall to, you know, attend to. So, so that, that service has grown fabulously. And then, um, you know, we, we started, we, so we do things, one of the questions, we do things based on the market, what okay. the market tells us to do. Yeah. Transcription was an item actually that was on the radar screen of Maine Health's administrative integration targets. I said, uh, transcription, I had a list of opportunities. And I said, I said, we're going to pursue that to Bill and Frank at the time. And I said, let us. So we pursued it and did the due diligence, collected data from all the hospitals around the state and, you know, put a pro forma together and decided that, you know, our best effort here is to try to create a transcription service. This was in 2004. And, um, but it took one of our smaller entities, Franklin Memorial, to step up to the table and say, Jerry, I'm going to give you my department of eight transcriptionists. Uh-huh. Outsource them to you, and you sell the service back to me. It took it took somebody really to step up. That's what it takes. Okay. It takes enabling scale of some sort to get one of these services off the ground. So this is a group that was existing, a team that was already existing at a at a local hospital. at a local hospital, right? And you took them over. We took them over, and they stayed there. And most of them stay. Yeah, we moved them off site. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we moved them off site. Okay. Um, that was. One of Rick's, Rick's stipulations was, you have to open. If you open an office, it's going to be in our community here. So we opened up a office in the Wilton Bass Shoe Factory and uh, moved in there and had renovated some beautiful space there. Actually, it was magnificent space, real high ceilings, you know, all that 
great old pine, you know, raw pine, and it was exposed. It was beautiful. It overlooked the river, <laughs> the creek. It's a beautiful space. Well, yeah. within a year, everybody was home. They had, were working from home. You were working from home. Okay. Within, a, within a year and a half or so, we leased the space, and you know, and and we, we realized that the model for growth was not going to be locally there because the only way we're going to grow this business was, I mean, if we picked up a customer in Camden, which was our next customer, or, you know, Rockland, uh, Penn Bay Medical Center, those transcriptionists weren't moving from to Wilton. So we had to figure out a way. So it became a home-based model. I mean, we kind of became a home-based model very quickly out the door. And today we have almost, well, we have almost 200 employees in that division, in that area. In transcription, yeah, scattered around the state, they're around the country, around the country. Yeah, we've got. So national. you try to place them close to a facility that they're not necessarily okay. Not necessarily. No, okay. it's just it's where we can get talent, and um, our challenge there is finding people who, who well, most of these people understand how to work at home because they've done it. Um, our challenge there is finding people who are very productive. I yeah. Mean, Meet high productivity standards and quality yeah. standards because that's what we sell. So, you know, our, our ability to sell to a hospital is based on our price. And if our, if we can't be productive, then we can't make our margins. And sure. So it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very challenging narrow margin business. So the wheels always keep turning. And, you know, in response to HIM staff, HIM people in, in the communities, they go, well, you know, if you're doing this, why don't you do coding work? You know, I mean, so, I mean, it's just the logical thing, you know, it's, you know, so we've assessed that in about two or three, three years ago, four years ago, the, 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 the IT dynamics got to the point where it, it's possible for staff to work remotely and it, access, you know, access has improved, you know, but you got to get access to all the patient's records through, you know, through an IT connection. And so a lot of hospitals online access, you know, the records were online. So it's a real challenge to work remotely, but eventually we were able to start the program. And, you know, all our, our you know, 95% of the time our coders work remotely from home, yeah. linked into the hospital's system to do coding work. Um, again, response to the marketplace, listening, understanding the dynamics, being able to offer a product at, at, at a price point that's below the national Firms that do that kind of work is really important because, you know, why, you know, why are we buying you? Well, we must be price competitive. Yeah. So that, that one, you know, it's the same thing market. And we, we listen to the market with regard to our provider enrollment services. Let, let me, so let me summarize kind of, of the flow as I understand how Cinternet has gone. Yeah. You start out as a group purchasing organization. You added on biomedical equipment repair, workers compensation. Right. You then add on credentialing verification, which we talked a little bit about. You added on transcription, and then you decide to exit uh, group purchasing. Yeah. What was the decision point there? Why? Why? Because that uh, seems like that was one of your kind of your personal background areas. Couldn't be a big enough player. Couldn't be a big enough player. Okay, so you couldn't get the scale. Couldn't get the scale. Um, couldn't be a big enough player. Um, the uh, the the systems themselves were creating their own internal. GPOs and working with nationals, and it was okay. like, what am I? I can't. How can I compete with Maine Medical Center when Maine Medical Center in in is part of Maine Health, and then they have st- you know the the smaller entity. It just it, it was not. You, you just weren't going to be able to generate. We weren't going to be able. We weren't going to be able. So to the big thing for you is finding things that you can scale. At, 
and then you have to jettison the things that you can't. Scalability, yeah. yeah. Scalability and size. Si- si- you know, scale, scale is great, and I can tell you, to a certain point, and after that, it becomes almost like this economy is the scale because, okay. you know, at a point, you know, you've got to add infrastructure, you've got to add support. It's yeah. just, I mean, there's, there's, there's certain, but scale is good though. Don't get me wrong. Scale is good, but it, it, it you know, that, that's the key. It is, it needs to be scalable and buildable, right? Um, then you added on provider enrollment services. Right. What is that? Provider enrollment services, um, are the, if you're a independent or any kind of a practitioner or a physician or a uh, um, an allied health professional, and you need to get paid by third-party payers, you need to you need to economically credential with them. So you need to send you you need to send every every third party that yeah. you want to get paid for. You got to fill out their form and okay. send it to them. So that they know you're actually a credential provider, and so that they you know should, you're a credential you. provider, and they can pay okay. you, and they will pay you. So I mean, in, so this is a service you provide one-stop shopping, essentially. Is that how I right? Is that okay? Yeah, so the hospitals that we work for, we will if they have a new provider that's employed by them, we'll enroll them. We'll in, take care in of all the enrollment in all the different with all the different third-party plans that are affiliated with their hospital. Okay, we'll take care of it. And what we do, see, what we do there is we leverage. Most of those customers, I think 90, I mean, are, are upstream customers of ours in credentialing. Okay. So we've captured like 80% of their data already. Okay. So now we're verifying it and we're augmenting it with specific. So there's a synergy there. Yeah. With specific information that needs to be added for the, for the third party billing because in our credentialing database, we don't have things like, we don't have necessarily have all the, you know, the practice addresses, the locations. Who in the practice might bill for services? That's not an accurate. And those are the kind of things that, you know, you have to do. And if a practice is applying to be paid for services from Anthem, they yeah. got to fill out these forms and they got to answer all these questions. So what we've done effectively is we've automated that. Okay. I mean, you know, we've got the data and then we populate those forms automatically. All right. You know, and, and you know, it's not, it's not, this is not magic. It's not rocket science. Right. It's right. just, but it's more convenient to have. It's convenient. Have you who you're already doing their credentialing stuff is just more convenient it, rather than setting up something at their facility to do it. They hire you to do it. It, it expedites the process mm-hmm. and it provides a good tracking mechanism as you've automated the data now, and so you can get reports of like you know I sent this I sent these these uh, applications to Anthem or to Medicaid or to Hybrid Pilgrim. 30 days ago and I haven't gotten a response back in terms of whether, you know, you know what I mean? So yeah. you've got a tracking mechanism. In most organizations, that is currently done, well, if it's an independent practitioner, they're doing it on their own. Um, if it's an organization, a hospital, it's typically done maybe in an organized fashion, but in a lot of times it's, it's fragmented. You got Different practices the hospital has acquired over time. And so the practice managers in each of the organizations are still doing that. So it's, I mean, trying to aggregate that function. If you go to a hospital, it's not easy to find where that function is. It can be disparately dispersed across the organization. So we provide a, we really, it's an excellent service. So it's really, it's going to be growth opportunities for us. So what would be your, what's your theme uh, uh, for, what is Cinternet really focused on now? Where, what's the strategic direction that you're taking the organization? Well, our, our, you know, our strategic direction at the, at, is fivefold right now. Um, number one, it's sustained growth in each of our businesses. 
because we, we, we think that does two things. Number one, it builds scale and it, and it solidifies the businesses that we have. And number two, it broadens our expertise because we learn from new customers. So we continue to grow. Our, our two, our, you know, our two, what I call big things for us are customer service, customer intimacy. We've determined, I mean, we've determined. There are three things that you can distinguish yourself competitively on. Low-cost provider, high-tech answer, customer intimacy. I mean, we're not going to be low-cost. We're not necessarily going to be the low-cost provider because we're not going to be the biggest. In the, we're not going to be the Walmart of anything we do. Um, I don't have Bell Lab. I don't, I don't have, you know, ran, ran research doing. Right. But I can be good at being the best with my customers in terms of, I call it customer intimacy, knowing the customer, responsiveness, follow-up, timeliness. And so we're real big for across all our, all our service areas to focus on the customer, the customer relationship and customer engagement. And similarly, the other, the other aspect of that is I tell people, the customer's first employees right there. The second, next second piece of this is our employees. So employee engagement is really high up on our strategic priority list right now because without good employees, I have nothing to deliver. Without a customer, I don't have a service. I don't have anybody to provide a service to, but without right. the employees, I can't provide a service because those are our two big, those are, our, that's our big resource. Our, our resources are employees. And then, you know, we glue it together with some IT stuff, uh-huh. which that's a challenge in and of itself is managing <laughs> IT. But that, I mean, those are, you know, I, I and we're, our, our growth, and it, it, our growth is different in each of our individual businesses depending on who that, where they are. Okay. I mean, you know, what they do and who they serve. So, and are you, you, different you are reaching out strategies. beyond Maine though, right? You are, you are Absolutely. Out, out. Our market, well, yes, and actually in our, in our plan this summer, our market is, our market is wherever the opportunity presents itself, okay. where we believe that, you know, as we, I think we expressed it in the strategic plan, where, where we believe our competencies and our, uh, and our capabilities can continue, to, can provide the service, you know, effectively. So we're not limited by geography, only limited by our capacities. Okay. And capacities are limited by talent, talent, you know, yeah. recruiting talent, finding good people, and, and secondly, by just resource constraints, IT. Okay. I mean, IT is always a challenge. I mean, especially in today's world, cybersecurity issues, you had another layer of overhead, you know, another layer of cost to protect and, and you know, and, and mitigate against those kind of risks because we're totally IT driven. Yeah. I mean, and if you're dealing with coding, you're looking at patient records and all kinds. Right. That's very all, important all, stuff. All those kinds of things. Yeah. So you know that those kind of infrastructure challenges, um, they're infrastructure, but they're really strategic for us. I mean, if we yeah. don't focus on those, yeah. we won't be. I mean, in the internet. Internet accessibility for us is a challenge because we don't necessarily control the internet accessibility for any of our employees. I mean, our employees are... If they're working from home. If they're working from home, and they could be with an internet carrier. You know, we have... I forgot, transcription has used 25 different internet carriers, I mean. So, I mean, we don't have any control of who the internet carriers are that they have, you know? Sure. Somehow they have to get to us. We actually have technology now. It's amazing. We have software that we, we can put a... What we call is a... An agent on an individual's machine, and it'll it'll show us all the all the points between here and our data center that they stop. I mean, and there's usually like more than eight. It's more it's more than eight. It's at least eight usually, because you know that you know 
they'll go from, they can, actually, you could go from Maine to Massachusetts to New York and then back to Maine, you know, in order to get here. I mean, on, yeah. on, on the internet backbones that are out there. So there's no, so that, that's, that whole issue, I mean, our, a lot of our models based on the internet. I mean, and if, if, if we're gonna, if they're not investing in the infrastructure to, to build the bandwidth and the capacity on that internet, we can be really challenged. And we, we're seeing, you know, we've seen the past year we've had increased issues with our remote workers and internet access. Okay. About how many workers in total does Cinternet? About 270, employ? no. 270. Wow. Yeah. Okay. What would you say are some of the most difficult strategic decisions you've had to make as CEO? The difficult decisions I've had, I ever had to make don't have to do with strategy. No. <laughs> they have to do with people. Okay. They have to do with um, developing people to, to meet the, the leadership or demands of their position or moving them out of the organization. Okay. Those are not easy things. Those are difficult things to do, especially when they're senior people. And, you know, when you realize that it impacts personal lives and careers and you never know what it, I mean, a lot of different things. Those are real, real difficult decisions that any CEO struggles with. Um, and my sense is that in retrospect, as I look back on my career, I've generally made those calls way before I made the move. And that's probably one of the, I, I'd call it one of my blind spots okay. is giving people more opportunities when I know that I really should be making the move. Okay. So you wait, you wait a little too long. I may wait a little too long. Okay. Um, so, I mean, difficult. I mean, I guess yeah. it comes down to who you are as a person and, you know, you always try to give people the, the benefit. Of, I don't call it the benefit of that. Well, some of the cases I'm describing have to do with somebody just not, you know, they're not, they're not the person you need right. to lead a particular area or they're not doing it, you know, so those are very difficult decisions. I mean, it's always a difficult decision to decide if you're going to make an investment or, you know, or step up and buy, like, you know, we had to buy, we had to invest in provider enrollment. So, I mean, we had to make a capital decision and say, we're really going to get into this business. In order to get into this business, we got to buy the technology infrastructure to support it. Right. And we have to hire somebody and say, you know, so we have to invest whatever it is, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars with knowing that we don't really have anything coming in yet. I mean, right. So, I mean, that those are, those are, those are difficult decisions that you, you make based on, you know, hopefully you do the due diligence and you take all the factors you have and you make, sooner or later you have to make a decision with, with incomplete. You don't have, we don't always have all the data. Right. You know, you have to go with, you know, I really, I mean, the, the services we've, we've, focused on and built we haven't had to back away from them which is kind of i mean so they've generally i mean we've generally know we feel the market wants it and there's an opportunity and we know we just have to fill it and then we have to yeah you know build the scale to kind of support it so i think the people decisions are the toughest they're really difficult what's a day in the life of uh, the ceo of Cinternet like i think i think it's like you know it, it, it could it would be it would be like three things a lot of, for me, it's a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one interaction with my leadership team in, in either one -on, you know, routine one-on-ones that we schedule every other time or 
to follow up on a specific thing that we're trying, initiative that we're trying to get. So it, it, it's a piece of that. The second piece is the external contact and talking to uh, customers, meeting with customers, seeing customers. I, I really like to go out. I, I mean, I love it when I'm on the road. I love it when I'm not in the office okay. and I can say, man, I've been on the road today. I was talking, you know, I'm just getting, I get energized, you know. Yeah. Um, the good news is when I usually go see a customer, uh, I'm not going in and they go, Jerry, I haven't really talked about this problem I've had with one of your services. God bless me. I mean, I got great people who do great work and in generally we're just having a very good positive conversation about what's going on, what the future is, where they are. But I really, that's, that's a big piece of what I, I, I need to do and what I, what I do. Um, it's like, like Tuesday, I I was up in Augusta meeting with somebody from Eastern Maine Healthcare about collaborative opportunities between Maine Health and Eastern Maine Healthcare, which that's part of my something that I'm, I'm, I'm focus one of my projects that I'm working on. In but that's an external kind of thing, you know. I enjoyed doing that. I came back. I had a meeting in the afternoon here in the office with one of my or two of my leadership team. You know, one on you know, one on meetings, and then probably spent. I spent the rest of the day probably working on projects that I have. You know, the, one of the big projects I have right now is our moving our offices. Our corporate. We're going to be moving our offices from this okay. building. Um, so I, I do a little of everything. I mean, yeah. I really enjoy the external customer relationship stuff a lot. Managing my leadership team, working with my leadership team, and then, and thirdly, just, you know, I list the laundry list of products. You know, on that laundry list is a succession plan and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Which I need to get to my board by May. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a blend. It's a blend. And I kind of like that. It's not one thing. It's not one thing, you know. What do you worry about most? What keeps you up at night when you're thinking about the organization? Is it any one thing or is it? I no, it no, 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 no. I, I, I think the thing I worry most about is, is financial performance of the organization being able to sustain in this environment where my customers' revenue base is not growing. Right. <laughs> right. You're selling to an industry that's. It's like this. Lines. Right. It's like this if we're lucky. And most of them are going like this. Yeah. You know, they're on a downslope, and so I'm downstream from that. And so yeah. it's difficult for, not difficult, I mean, our challenge is to continue to grow value in our organization yeah. and maintain that margin of profitability. And they're, um, and they're hiring you because they're being squeezed, right? I mean, they hire <laughs> because they're getting squeezed. Right. Uh, you know, they're hopefully hiring us because we're getting squeezed, and we think we can do it in a better way. Yeah. And... So I think I think that 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 just because it's it, because it's not it's not a stable environment. I mean, it's a very it's a very dynamic, changing environment. I yeah. mean, so I think financial profitability. And the, the other thing that does wake me up occasionally is IT issues. I, I, they just do because, because I mean security kind of stuff, security stuff, or, or the glue, or or, yeah. or or that whole thing. I mean, yeah. last year, you know, this is a I just relate this incident to you, and it, I mean, it, it, a number of physicians in Portland had their, uh, there was, you know, there was a big national thing with this too. Had, had you know, uh, false, false tax returns filed, uh, uh, you know, and, and it just happened. It popped up on the radar screen of a number of docs within 
the close community here of Portland within within a short period of time. And I mean, you don't even. I mean, the only the only, and so the, who has all the physician information in this town? Senator. So I mean, we came under scrutiny for about two months. I got to tell you, my IT folks and my credentialing people did an unbelievable job. <laughs> I mean, there was no way to prove that that's where the data came from. Eventually, though, you know, I don't know, one of the large national credit bureaus was, was there was a big data that was identified in one of the big data or one of the big national credit search firms. But yeah. that kind of stuff keeps me up. Yeah, sure. That kind of stuff really keeps me up. Sure. Because, because, to my to my IT guy goes, he goes, we can mitigate risk, but we can't eliminate them. I mean, you know, if somebody really wants to get you, they're going to get you. So, what uh, surprised you most about the CEO role once you stepped into it? It's lonely at the top. It's lonely at the top. So, what do you mean by that? I never really understood what that meant. Yeah. Until I was the CEO. Okay. There are very, you don't have. It's a lot of things I can't share with my management team. There's a lot of things I can't share with my board. If I share my management team, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm talking to them about stu- I mean, things that might impact another one of their colleagues, or I can't talk about performance issues related to one of their colleagues. If I share stuff like that with my board, it's like, oh, geez, your person works in your organization, and you have those kind of issues with them. So, I mean, I, you know, I just really, am, it's difficult sometimes, or it's, you know, and even this whole issue of succession is not, I mean, because once you tell somebody you're leaving, I'm going to leave that date, then it's a done, I mean, that's the date that sticks in their mind. So I haven't given them a firm date yet. They know that. Uh-huh. They're waiting for something. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's low. You don't, I mean, I don't have a lot of people that sometimes I can talk to about things that are front and center on my mind. Um, so I have joined a CEO Networking group oh. called Vistage. Okay. It's a national organization that um, provides a forum for CEOs to get together on a, on a, on a local basis. And I, they're huge. They've got like seven or 8,000 members across the country in different wow. regional networks that are set up and chaired by what they call a chair, a Vistage chair in the region. And you get together monthly. And generally the format is... A speaker of some sort on an important topic, whether it's growth, employees, uh, content, I mean, business continuity, going green. And then what we do is we process issues um, and everybody checks in as how they're doing in their personal, professional life and where we are. And then we go down the list and people say, this is one of my big issues that I'm dealing with right now. And we list them out and then we prioritize them and we decide based on that, well, we should help. Mark talk about that issue and then sure. we process it with yeah. a group of other CEOs. Nice. Okay. So it's it, it, it's nothing it's nothing uh it's not magical stuff. It's yeah. peers peers networking and your ability to basically I mean, with confidentiality I mean it's ability to share whatever you you're thinking. Yeah. Um like you know I really can't tell my management team on my board the strengths and weaknesses of all my management team. <laughs> Right, I know. Yeah, they're not sharing it with all my board members, but some of them are my customers. I, I'd be a different. I, that's my big challenge in that regard is that my board are my customers also, and so I can't right. I gotta really be careful what I say to them sometimes. Right. So that's a real challenge. That's that's probably one of the most. 
I, I mean, I really understand when they say it's lonely at the top. I really understand that now. They really do. If you could go back in time to 1999 and meet your 1999 self, what advice would you give him as he stepped into the role? What caught you by surprise, maybe, I guess? Right, so you said lonely at the top, but what would you tell him? Hey, what, be ready for this. This is... I think, you know, you have to... And I, I'm, I'm, I'm tolerant. I think you've got to be tolerant of... I mean, I'm pretty good at this, though. I'm tolerant of the politics, you know, and the system dynamics that go on and the slowness of people to react. And I, I guess, I mean, if I, had to, if I had to go back, I'd go, you know, I really should have gone with my gut a few more times. And my gut told me what I was supposed to do a year before I did it. Yeah. Like I was telling you about yeah. people. Yeah. That's really, you know. So now I'm 65 years old. So I finally figured that out. I mean, I'm almost retired. Right. <laughs> it took me a lifetime to figure out that my gut is in a bad direction. The gut is not, my gut is not bad. My gut yeah. is pretty good. It usually yeah. tells me what I should be doing. But yeah. I mean, it takes, I mean, you know. So trust your gut. Would have trust been your, my gut. Would be your, your advice to your, yourself 17 years ago. Trust my gut. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? I've probably done a lot more leadership reading in the past four or five years than I ever did before. Was that, I was like, I mean, no, really? This is what I, uh, I think, but my, my, I think my, my, my philosophy is servant leadership. Okay. I mean, I, I really, we all have egos, and I, 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 we all have an ego, but I, I, I just never consider myself egotistical enough to know it all or to know everything. Like a lot of leaders come on. I really, my, my view is that my role here is is to facilitate the managers and the leaders that I have working for me and, and to provide them, you know, help them, help them to, to achieve the goals that they set for themselves and that we set jointly to, for the organization. And it's, I'm an advisor. I'm an advisor and, you know, and I, and I've got to, you know, and I know I have to make the tough calls occasionally because that's where my responsibilities are. But I never feel like I am the person, I'm the only one who, I'm the one who knows it with that. I mean, I, I know it all. So I view myself as a servant to my direct reports, to my employees, and to my customers. What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? Good leaders, Talk the talk, and then they walk it. Okay. They exemplify it. They demonstrate what they talk. So I believe, I don't know if I do that all the time, but I really try to do that all the time. I mean, that's, that's my goal. I mean, I mean, if I'm, if I'm asking, like I had a discussion with my, when I go, I go, you know, really, we have to be, I always thought, so we've got to be the bigger, it's like, you know, be the bigger person and take the first step and take the initiative. I says, we've got to be the bigger person here and take the initiative with that customer. I mean, it's up to us to do that first. We should take the initiative. I mean, don't wait for them to call you. Well, you know, they were supposed to get back to me on that, and they haven't. And I go, well, I agree. You know, they were. I mean, actually, when we left that meeting, that was the idea. But take the step first. Okay. Step out there. Be the first person to take the lead. I mean, you never know. How did you come to believe that these were the key aspects of leadership? Who did you, who do you think you learned leadership most from? And whose examples do you keep in mind when you think about 
when you're reflecting on leadership questions? Who, who, do, you, who do you reach back to in your mind? Yeah, I kind of ask me who my heroes are. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> who are my heroes in life? Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't really, I don't know if I have a solid answer for that. Okay. I really don't. Okay. I really don't. I mean, I, I, I you know, when I, when I look at people, I mean, when I look at examples of, you know, I, I look at, um, organizations like Southwest Airlines and, that guy Herb Kelleher ran that organization for years, and I think he's I think he's gone now. But the kind of culture that they created there, which was one of service and having fun with having fun. I mean, this is not bad. I mean, you know, your employees are important in the service. I mean, I think that those are the kind of people that you know. When I look at those kind of people in the marketplace, those are the kind of people, or you know, you know, for parallels to where I want to be. That's the kind. of those are the kind of people I, I want I want to I want to try to be like or I want our organization to be like. Okay. What do you look for when you're hiring leaders and evaluating leaders? Certainly, depending on what we're looking for, the technical and expertise that we're looking for, but I'd say fifty percent of it or even sixty percent of it is attitude and leadership and communication skills and ability to interact with people. I think it's a fine balance. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that I'd hire somebody that's underqualified by 60% because that's all I want. But I mean, I think the balance is almost in a, in a leadership role is almost more tilted towards the communication soft and the uh, emotional intelligence kind of skills okay. uh, than to the technical skills. You mentioned organizational culture a second ago with your reference to Southwest. What is organizational culture, and why is it important? And how do you shape organizational culture? I hate to use I hate to use uh, hackneyed terms, but I, I I always say that culture trumps strategy all the time. Okay. I mean, I I know strategy's cheap. I know really. Go get the latest books on, on, on corporate strategy and customers. I mean, you can get that. Creating a culture where people want to come. You know, look forward to coming to work and look forward to providing the end product of the end service to your customers and having customers who really have a, have a, have a, a, a appreciation for what you do, respect you and want to partner with you. That's really what it's all about. I mean, I, I think that that customer employee relate, the customer, uh, employee relationship and the employee Employer relationship are the key, are the keys to, to providing, you know, a great, and you really need to think about those two things and you need to work at them. And uh, it's not as, it's not as simple as, uh, you know, take this step, take next step, take next step. I mean, it, there's a lot, there's a lot involved in, in that, you know, that emotional, you know, it's, this is emotional intelligence, this is emotional intelligence on both them and, and both of those dimensions that builds the right culture that you want to have. I mean, you mentioned some folks who you considered to be mentors earlier in your career. How did they influence your thinking about leadership and about your career? Uh, so it's interestingly, I probably wasn't really thinking about leadership. Okay. When I, when I think back to the people who I, early on I said to you, geez, you know, these people saw more in me than I saw in myself. Um, and they saw capabilities and abilities and valued my opinions and, um, I kind of I kind of do a leadership by 
I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. I know that's not so you, good. So you see negative examples. <laughs> I see negative examples of what leadership is not <laughs> and shouldn't be. Okay. Um, and uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't know if I hold, I mean, I don't know if I hold out someone as the paragon of okay. like, that's the leader I want to be. Okay. Um, I know what I don't want. I know, I know what I don't want to be. Aside from, from leadership in particular, how did your, how did these mentors help you develop your career or, or move forward in your career early on? I, I think, I think, I think in, in, in many cases they gave me confidence in my abilities. Is that what a good mentor does? Is give, I, I think they confidence? have to, yeah, well, they, they give you confidence. Well, actually, a good mentor can help you develop your abilities also, uh, okay. or, or identifies how, um, one of my, my best mentoring stories, and I, I don't have very many, I, I really, I don't, is my executive assistant, who's extremely smart. I mean, she's a very intelligent woman, very, and very people adept. It's great, great people skills, and she never went to school, never got a degree, and, but had some kind of a, well, by nature of her role, she would, she, she would do benefit enrollments and HR related work, and I, and so I said, Seb, I go, what if I thought about going back to college and getting an education and, you know, ah, because school's not for me. I don't want to go back to school. And I go, no, you know, I'm not, well, you know, there's a lot of program at programs for people who've been in the working world that go back to school and get certificates and stuff like that. So I went, and that was one of our goals for the year, a couple, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Go, we'd go look into, you know, so she comes back and she goes, well, you know, I identified this thing. At, and I said, so, I goes, well, what do you think? I, I said, I goes, well, I'm willing to give it a try. So, you know, the first class she comes back from, the first time, she goes, oh, my God. She goes, all those people in that classroom are just like me. <laughs> you know, and so she went through and she got her uh, PHR certificate and, uh, uh, from, from USM and what it was that? I don't know how long it was, more than a year, it was a year and a half kind of stuff, you know, and then she sat and got her certification as a, you know, certified professional in human resources very, very soon thereafter. And she probably will be sitting for the SPHR exam at some point in the future. And she's just worked into the, she's my HR administrator now. I mean, that's the bottom line. Great. She worked into her role and, um, and not only is she good, I, you know, I, I don't know if she could be the HR strategist for an organization with a thousand people. Given the role, given where she is right now, she does an excellent job. And I've had her do, I've had her do employee mediation of employee situations with managers and employees and stuff like that. And the people come back and me go, thank God Debbie was there, man. She really helped us, you know, you know. She's just really good at that. Yeah. You know? So you identified this. I identified it, it and I was really pleased that her. I did. I mean, and, yeah. uh, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a, a mentoring of need built out of need. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I needed to mentor her because I really needed somebody to step into that role and she was ready to do it. Um, she did a great job of it. She's done a really great job of it. How do you so. develop leaders in your organization? And, what are your expectations for mentorship within the organization? So you've got leaders working for you. Yeah. What are um, your expectations of mentorship from them, uh, to their people? The past 
three or four years, we've attempted to do a better job of helping each of our directors, level manager, level people understand their leadership styles, who they are, how they do, why they get done, what they get done, what are their, you know, we've done 360 evaluations to try to give them some insight. I can say that as a corporate organization, corporately, we don't do a very good job of that. We just don't. It's, it's like, it's one of those things that I think we, I know we need to spend more time on, but it's like, we don't find enough time to do the time, the time yeah. on it that we need to spend on. Each of my directors have a sudden loss leader that they've identified. That another member. Do I remember the last time I sat down with my director and said, "Where are you in the plan to make sure that that?" I mean, I mean, in one area I know that the person is up to speed. So yeah. I, I and so I, a I sudden loss leader. But you mean. If Something happens to my director, and they're out. somebody there to assume the responsibilities okay. on a day-to-day basis until we determine, you know, who's going to fill Permanent the director's filled. role. You know? Okay. And in, in the case of this individual, the one where we've really done it real well, I, you know, it comes down to the individual. I, a lot of times, it's the individual director, the individual manager, and they're they're all not everyone's not everyone's equally adept at doing those kinds of things. Yeah, they're just not. Yeah. Um, so we're, I mean, our overall corporate organizational development, I guess you would call organizational development, is not where I would like it to be. Okay. And not where it needs to be if we're going to be a 500 employee organization. You know what I mean? I mean, we really need to, we need to focus more attention on, on, on those areas. I mean, it, it would really be great if, I mean, we're, we're very thin, we were, we were in a very thin organization with not a lot of, I mean, it'd be great if I had HR, HR staff support to kind of take initiative like that, and, you know, and develop the programmatic stuff so that we can have each of our directors and managers run through these kind of things. I know it'd be a great thing yeah. to do, but it's like, oh, just. Most organizations don't have formal mentoring programs. They it's don't. Not I mean, we, you know, and really, I mean, I, I it's, some of the good ones, if you read about them, mm-hmm. they really do a real good job of that. Yeah. Organizations that have been real successful. But then again, you're talking about organizations that got scale, you know, like, yeah. you know, GE is really, I mean, I mean, I don't know, General Electric is notorious for being able to really build their managers, you know, yeah. and, and create, you know, managerial talent. Now you're talking about tens of thousands of employees. And leadership. Yeah, I know, <laughs> leadership training and skills and all yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. I mean, uh, yeah, you're talking about that. So we try to leverage off everything we can do. Um, and we generally, it's just to try, usually try to bring every other management team meeting every other month just to try to bring something to the table that's of relevance to leadership. Um, you know, a couple months ago, we had a really good program on personal resiliency and what that means and how that really impacts you on a day-to-day basis and your employees and so I mean we try to do things like that it's not organ it's not as organized as I'd like it to be I okay. mean okay fair enough it's not as organized as I'd like it to be when did you get involved in ACHE you mentioned a couple of other uh, professional organizations that you've been involved yeah with over ACHE the years. I got involved in in the early 90s okay um, when I was at the Greater Cleveland Hospital Association and you've been the past you're the past president for northern New England Yes, and um, I got involved with ACHE because 
you know, when I got, when I got, when I started working back at GCHA and actually I think I may have gotten involved earlier than that. I may have had my membership before I went to GCHA, but I followed the, the, the development path when I got to GCHA and got my, uh, uh, fellow was CAG. Yeah, right, right. Uh, certified healthcare executive took the exam early on. And I guess when I got to the GCHA, I started looking around and realizing that a lot of the professional peers and people that I was going to be working with, a lot of them were, were fellows of the college. And so I said, you know, geez, I should be part of that organization. I mean, okay. I think it demonstrates to, to them that I'm, you know, I, you know, I have the same level of professional, uh, professional credibility that they have or the same level of professional interest that I did. So I got, I got involved then and did that and came here and got involved. And I think I got, I was very active with the local, uh, chapter in Northeast Ohio. How did it help your career? I don't, and, I, and why I, would it be important for, for young people to consider joining? I, I think it, I think it helped my career, but provided me a network of, of fellow colleagues and contacts that I could always call on or, you know, either for, I don't know, I frequently call people and go, do you know this person? I'm talking to this individual, you know, you know, what, what, what can you tell me? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just a professional network of people that, has it personally taken my career in a different direction? I can't say it has. But um, has it enhanced it? Or enhanced it. That, that's, that's what I meant. Not, it's enhanced not it. it per se. It's enhanced it and, uh, because it's broadened my base of who I know. And from a selfish perspective, it's opened up numerous doors for us from a business business perspective. Sure, that I might customers not, as well. Right. That, I, that I might not have been open, able to open as easily if I didn't have the collegial relationship that I had established through through ACHA. Okay, and so I always tell people. I know people come to the table for these organizations uh, for a whole host of different reasons. Mine was somewhat driven by selfishness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My ability to make contact with the right people I need to make contact with sure. at the right time and thinking yeah. that this will be a, this will be a great avenue to do that. Interestingly, I had a what, what do you want to call it? Uh, a come to Jesus moment when I when I was reaching and I went to Chicago for the installment ceremony. Uh, in, in, at the college, and we had to get all gowned up, walk down with our gowns, and and I go, oh my God, Jerry, this is this is the level of professional competence and certification that you reach that you're sitting on the stage with the CEO of this institution in in, in California and the CEO of this institution in Texas, and you know, you're one of them. I really felt really, really good about it. I, yeah. it may, it, you know, and I, I've told people that again now numerous times. When you get your fellowship, go sit for the installation because it'll give you a feeling of accomplishment and yeah. satisfaction yeah. and understanding. And that's what it did for me that I never really had before. It's really, really great. <laughs> it was a great experience. Uh, so, last question: What advice do you have for? young people just starting a career in healthcare and healthcare administration. Uh, what should they be doing to be successful? What should they be reading? Who should they be talking to? If you're just starting out in this world, in this world of work today where things have changed so dramatically, I, you, you, you really need to be prepared 
to tell your story and talk to anybody and everybody who might potentially help you. So, I mean, I can only tell them that networking on the broadest possible basis, um, whether it's personal friends, colleagues, professional colleagues, people that your parents know, it's, you really need to get out there and, and, and tell them who you are and what you want to do. Because the more you talk to people, the more ideas get generated. It's I don't think I don't think there's a and there's not a magic bullet anymore. I mean I don't think it's as easy. I mean I don't think it, I think it's more difficult today because you have so many qualified, very, very qualified, very intelligent, very well educated competition that's out there in the marketplace. Because the generation that came before me, and my generation, said. We got to send all our kids to colleges, and they all need an education, which I think is great. Yeah. But I, I, the, the, the number of opportunities out there are limited, and you need to distinguish yourself. And I think you distinguish yourself through personal interaction with peers, both other peers or individuals who are in a position to, make, you know, potentially refer you or influence you or even hire you. I know. I think that that. That's where you need to be. You need to be at the forefront. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a uh, tech savvy person. And so I'm not, I, I, I don't think you can carry a, a, a campaign to find a job out on the internet. Maybe you can or on Facebook. I think, I mean, that's still, I mean, yeah. so my, my advice is you, you really gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta work at it. Mm-hmm. And it takes time. Thank, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate uh, all the, Great information you shared. I, I hope it was, it'll be useful to you folks and a value to, you know, to some one. If it's a value to one of your students, then it'll be a value, I guess. <laughs> right? Yes. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information, or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll see you again in about two weeks.